Jesus uttered these words 2,000 years ago. How are they going to beat ISIS? I don't think it's going to happen. But, but he has these bizarre ideas about what Christianity stands for and what it means. Atomic bombs and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And when he does, you will no longer be a homosexual, but you will be a heterosexual. And that's what it means to be white. To say that you're standing on your own ground and standing on somebody else's and then mystify the whole process. This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. We won't be trying to answer difficult questions. Rather, we'll be engaging them and asking better ones regarding faith, race, gender, and religion. I'm your host, Daniel White Hodge. Hey, 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 hey. Welcome back, everyone. This is your boy, Dan White Hodge. Another week, another episode of Profane Faith. Welcome back, everybody. I uh, Good to uh, thank you for listening. And yeah, I think, uh, you know, this week here is another week. And I think this is going to be the last week for season four um so no worries you know we'll be back in action for season five and profane faith i'm not taking it off the air completely so no need to worry about that your profanity and faith will be here and it will be in full effect for you so no need to worry on that (laughs) um but um it's the summer and uh, like i said last week um you know we usually take a break during the summer just to kind of um you know just figure out life out and just think about themes for uh next next season um which will probably start in the fall sometime and uh this mysterious whole of what is going to be uh, a semester um we're seeing COVID's uh you know spike all over the place and i am not on the train to reopen everything right away um it's very interesting just to see those uh to see that and to see the amount of places that still want to open i mean i know some of the ivy leagues have already called it particularly with sports um and we're seeing a spike right and this is all the things that were predicted about you know COVID that you know it would go down um you know once we when we had the mandatory uh shut-ins and then you know the summer would come and then it would spike again because once you start opening everything and you don't have a cure or you don't have a vaccine (laughs) right uh you know that kind of crap just starts to happen so here we are in the middle of a pandemic and um the reality of it is is that um is that until a cure is actually found or some kind of vaccine is that you know we're just going to continue to see this stuff and I have called it, unfortunately, for AAR. I am not going to go. This will be the first year that I haven't been to AAR in, you know, well over a decade. And as you know, if you've listened to the show, you know that AAR has been very instrumental just in my own just theological, uh, religious, uh, racial, womanist formation. And um, I love that conference. It's... um, it's a space that I find that I kind of, I always feel refueled after, you know, going to it. And I always feel like that's my, my, that's my filling station for the year. I can go there and, you know, fit, I don't feel as, 
I don't feel as nutty. <laughs> I feel like I fit in and um, that's gold. You know what I'm saying? That is gold and you can't, you can't buy stuff like that. So uh, I am bummed, but I cannot see uh, 20,000 scholars from around the world uh, and a lot from states that are already spiking and high risk. I already see some notifications on travel bans for people who are coming from uh, some of the you know states like Florida that is spiking, Texas that is spiking, uh, a lot of the southern states, a lot of the GOP led states that opened early, right? Uh, those are the ones that are um, y'all are now seeing you know a spike in COVID cases and stuff, and so you know. I'd say 95% of what we do at AAR is indoors in a windowless recycled air room. <laughs> okay. Do talking. Right. Um, and, uh, I just can't see it. I just can't, I can't see, um, going to a specific area like that. And it's going to be in Boston and it's going to be cold during that time. So it's not like even like, you know, last year we were in San Diego, uh, which, you know, there was the option to be outside, right? There was the option to, um, you know, uh, in, you know, to actually be, you know, in a space where, you know, you weren't freezing your ass off, right? Um, but it was, we're not, we're going to be in Boston. And if, you know, this thing continues and I, you know, I subscribe to, um, what is it? Uh, the Boston Post. Uh, I get, you know, I read the headlines. I like that particular newspaper. And so I've been reading just some of the the cases and the spikings and everything. And so, you know, we're not even going to be able to go into some of the restaurants. And I think about, you know, you know, Saturday, Sunday and Monday of the conference is um, receptions and that's all close counter, right? Uh, indoors and stuff. And so I'm just like, I'm not going to put my family at risk. That's It's a risk. And it's not worth it. Um, as much as I love the conference, as much as I love that time, it's just, it's not worth me contracting something and then having to come back. Like if, if I went, I would have to literally isolate myself for two weeks. Um, and that's right during the Thanksgiving holiday. And it pains me to say it, but I just, I cannot go to, um, AAR this year, given that, um, yeah, given that there is no vaccine, no cure, uh, yet for it. And so, um, yeah, I'll be I'll be home. I'll do my stuff virtually. I you know, there's a couple of sessions I'm presiding over, so I'm more than happy to 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 log in. I know a couple of folks have told me that AAR is going to cancel, but uh, you know, since it's so big, I think there's something about hotels and waiting. I don't know. Either way, I had to make that decision. Uh, uh, both Emily and I made it, and uh, we just talked it out and everything. And that goes. Also for my daughter, like, um, you know, the schools now or they want to reopen in the fall. And I just think it's dumb. I just think it's dumb. How in the hell are you going to keep middle schoolers? OK, with their masks on. For the entire damn day. No, it ain't going to happen. It's just not. Um, and, you know, they're talking about, oh, we'll do a hybrid model where you're only on campus, you know, twice a week or whatever. I don't care if you're on campus for five minutes. I mean, if you got 300 kids in a room and they're walking up and down the hallways, how the hell are you going to protect them from all the madness that is COVID-19? You can't, you can't. And so, uh, again, now something else that, you know, and they sent a survey out and it was interesting. I thought there would be more parents 
in our school district that were like, nah, I ain't sending my kid. But the majority of parents want to send their kids back, which I get. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I freaking get. It's like, oh my gosh, when do you guys go back? You're in the house. And I get that that's also child care for people too. These are complicated things, y'all. These aren't these aren't easy things, right? I mean, we're a working class society. Um, we don't have the the expenditures. We are also a society that is driven by career and driven by, um, you know, the reality of of uh, of the end. Um, what am I trying to say? We're driven by accomplishments. That's what I'm trying to say. And um, that reality gives way to a whole bunch of other areas right we we are consumed with those things and so right kids going to school means i you know i get to go to work because i got to get paid i got to pay for this i got to pay for that i got i got to pay for um i got to pay for the mortgage i got to pay for lights i got to pay for just the things right i mean so i get that you know, and I get that also that I am privileged that I get that as a teacher that I have a much more flexible schedule than somebody who has, say, a nine to five um, or somebody who works in the service industry or somebody, you know, I mean, it, all those things play a factor. So I get it's not an easy decision. I'm just trying to think of the safety and welfare of what this disease can put on somebody. And then the long term effects, because we don't know what the long term effects are going to be. Um so those are all those are all the things, y'all, that I that I am pondering. And I think the fall is is going to be an interesting time because I just don't think that um, we're in any position to open back up and no and no position. I mean, it's tough enough wearing my mask for an hour or for 30 minutes while I go to the store and shop. Right. Uh, let alone for an entire day. Um, and that's one of the decisions, too, that I'm thinking. I mean, as a professor, right, that I use my voice a lot even if i do activities i'm still using my voice like to be in a classroom even if i'm doing a hybrid model to be in a classroom with with folks and to be you know surrounded by that and just you know now that we're learning more about covid right it sticks to clothes it can stick to the end of your a mask if that's not handled properly uh it can land on surfaces and so it's like man do i really want to subject myself to that and then do i want to really subject myself my family to that um and we're seeing right i mean there's reports after reports coming in there was one in the usa today that came out this week that was talking about how two teachers were um teaching in the summer program uh doing the same thing hybrid model co both contracted uh covid19 and one died and stuff and so i'm just not trying to do that i mean it's like again this is this is serious stuff <laughs> uh and so i you know it's it, and it's conf confounding to me that uh, you know you have people who are still saying that it's made up and that it's fake i am kind of glad though that a lot of folks on trump's team are getting are getting tested positive i ain't gonna front on that you know especially the cats that are talking about you know oh it ain't real it ain't real it ain't real you know this is just fake this fake news fake news and then they're then they ask you know turn up you know covid positive <laughs> Oh, Lord have mercy. But uh, nevertheless, um, yes, nevertheless, it, it is it is something that, you know, both Emily and I are processing and thinking, and it's, and it's not an easy decision. It's definitely not. Um, so here we are, right? Here we are. So I'm trying to enjoy my time this summer. Um, this coming week, I'll be taking a trip with my daughter to go fishing. 
and just her and I, and just we'll be hanging out, and you know, we'll we'll just be doing that. So I'm excited for that. I'm excited for uh, just a little bit, few more weeks of rest, and uh, kind of unwinding, and then yeah, back to the madness and stuff, man. So, oh y'all, I tell you, crazy times, crazy times, and uh, I hope y'all are still safe. I hope uh, hopefully some of y'all's decisions won't be uh, as crucial or as. Um, you know, as, uh, as nefarious, uh, I don't, you know, I don't know where you at and what, what you got going on, but, uh, hopefully it won't be as crazy as what I've, <laughs> what, what we've got going on. And, you know, and again, I know I'm not the only person, right? I know that there are other folks with kids, especially small children. I mean, that are in elementary school. I mean, again, how are you going to keep elementary kids, second graders with masks on for the entire day? I, I just don't see it. I just don't see it. So that's that. Um, here we are. We are um, at uh, at a crucial juncture. So that will be that. <laughs> that will be that. So um, this uh, this week, I'm excited because um, my guest this week is Dr. David Dalt. And uh, I have been on his show a couple of times and he is a great guy, a versatile guy when it comes to just understanding religion, society, race. Um, and, uh, you know, I, 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 I came to know David Dalt, of course, through where else? Oh, AAR. <laughs> and um, he is just a great thinker, a great writer. And um, I love the way, you know, he's a gearhead like me. And in terms of like audio and, you know, he does a radio show, Things Not Seen, uh, which you'll talk about here in a little bit. And I've just appreciated him. So I was like, man, we got to get you on the show. And so we finally lined up schedules and got him on the show. And I, I think this is a great way to um, end out season uh, season four, uh, looking at what David has been up to and engaging in just uh, just some of the work that he's been doing and, and whatnot. Um he, uh, he's going to begin his new uh, position as assistant professor of Christian spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies out here at Loyola University here in Chicago. Uh, he brings an impressive range of experiential experience and passion along with a vision of how Ignatian spirituality should uh, suffuse all that we do. Um, he earned his PhD in theology at Vanderbilt. He, uh, he has a book under contract with Yale University uh, and Fortress. Uh, and uh, he's just You'll see. You're about to hear. You're about to hear him. I just, I love the way he thinks and the way he processes things. Um, he's taught a range of courses uh, at the graduate level and courses, including courses uh, in scripture and Christian spirituality. Uh, he is just been a good friend and a good, just kind of guy to sound things off. And I'm excited to finally have him on the show because he, it's, it's been it's it, yeah it's both our schedules just didn't line up for a long time and um and i'm glad that, that they finally do and he's also the host and executive producer um for uh, things not seen it's a podcast and radio show conversations about culture and faith uh, again all those links will be in the show notes on whiteodgepodcast.com um and uh, he got us actually started in journalism when he was about 16 and writing articles for his hometown newspaper. And uh, he's just been engaged with that uh, that material and, and ever since and whatnot. And so, again, good old Doc 
is uh, breaking some good stuff down. And particularly, I want you to take a note, just again, has understanding of studying religion and spirituality. Um, uh, he's, he's got some good stuff out there. So when you get a chance, check out his Twitter account, which, by the way, your boy is still in Twitter jail. <laughs> Man, I tell you, every time I see Twitter, I, I cringe in anger. So uh, I... I, I I just got just had to say it. I just had to say it. Still in Twitter jail. Although somebody emailed me from Twitter talking about I'm verified now on Twitter. <laughs> I'm verified. Yeah, it's like, oh here, access your account. By the way, we have this BS uh hold on your account. Um it's crazy, y'all. I'm still fighting it. I'm still fighting it. Even though it keeps saying, you know, you can delete your tweet. You can just delete it and admit your guilt. Nah, man. So yeah, it's frustrating. Anyways, all that to say, enjoy this conversation. Uh, thank you all for your support uh, over season four. Again, we've been looking at a, a theology um, of hopelessness, and that's looked it looked like a, a few different things, right? Um, with guests, um, particularly how we look at hope, how we look at violence, how we look at uh, just the changing field and economy of what is the wilderness of North America, right? Um, and I think that it's 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 interesting when we start to think about hopelessness because that's not something that's often preached about. Um, I think about the way the Book of Jonah uh, ends uh, with a hopeless note. I, I think about. Um, you know, Jesus working with disciples that were at you know points just stubborn and you know hopeless. Uh, you know, I think about how he still invested in somebody like Judas. Uh, you know, even though he knew right that what was going to happen. So, I think a theology of hopelessness is really important, and especially, you know, how do we maintain spirituality in a time that seems hopeless? Now, I know that for some folks, they're like, no, there's always hope. There's always hope. I hear you. I hear you. There's a social construct on that. Um, and I hope to explore that a little bit more in different writings and different works. Um, but uh, it's also, um, as I think about just how, as I think about just how important it is to have a healthy balance, because I think if we're always praising and having hope, we miss out on the goodness and the benefit of what hopelessness looks like. Um, and it's and it's an incomplete, for me, an incomplete spirituality uh, and, and theology um, to really have, to really to have a theology of hopelessness. Um, so that's kind of what I was after in summary uh, this season. Uh, I do thank you for your support, all the emails and whatnot. And, uh, you know, I always miss being off because I enjoy doing this. And this is a fun space for me, a fun time. And uh, it's something that I enjoy doing. So, um, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely. But at the same time, I will enjoy the time off to gather some thoughts and think about what season five is going to look like. It's kind of hard to believe that, you know, a little podcast that started in, you know, 2017, you know, now has, you know, almost 2000 uh, uh, plus subscribers. In fact, I think we're over, we're over uh, 2000 uh, subscribers and decent with the stats that you can pick up from uh feed burner. And then I know um, Apple has some, uh, the iTunes has some, some interesting stats as well. So, Oh, y'all, I tell you, I tell you, 
Indeed, here we are. It's just I keep I keep saying here we are because this is it, right? This is it. This is where we're at, and it's kind of a surreal place. And so, stay safe, stay well, stay sane. Enjoy this conversation with my good friend, Dr. David Dalton. Well, Dr. David Dalt, man, finally on Profane Faith after uh, I've been on Things Not Seen. I'm going to try to uh, be as good a host and have a good as timber in my voice as you do on your show, brother. You're very kind. And I, I love Profane Faith. I love the work that you're doing. And I always love a chance when I get to talk to you. So thank you for having me on. My goodness. I was, in fact, I was just telling a friend because um, I was explaining, I was like, okay, I got to go and go down and get um, get ready for this podcast. And they were like, oh, who's with us? I said, oh, man, my good friend, Brother David Dalt. We first met at AAR, I believe, was it? Yeah, that's right. We were at, we went to a dinner together, I think that was hosted by Liturgical Press when we were both working on the Rock and Theology blog that's from right. many years ago. That's right. That's right. That's right. I forgot about that. I forgot about that. And then I remember I saw you present, uh, probably again, and I'm not just saying this, this is one of the best papers I've seen at AAR on this Bible that fell out of the plane on 9-11 and whatnot. Yeah, so I, I I have some relatives that live near Shanksville, Pennsylvania, and that was the site of the other plane that didn't crash into the buildings, United 93. And I went there um, for a Thanksgiving to be with those relatives, and afterwards we stopped by the memorial site. And at the time, it wasn't a built-up memorial site. It was literally a chain-linked fence with, with sort of um, various mementos uh, tied to the fence. And one of the things that was tied to the fence was a laminated copy of a newspaper article from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette talking about them finding a Bible in the wreckage of United 93. And so I started researching and have been researching for years the very strange and twisted history of this Bible because it's not just one Bible. Uh, the, the, story, the story has convoluted over the years. First, they found a Bible with a black cover. Then it was with a white cover. Then it was owned by, first it was owned by a Japanese person who was converting from Buddhism to Christianity. Then it was owned by a Sunday school teacher from out West. And as, as I traced the story, I found that the, the physical Bible itself got less and less important and the interpretations that people were giving to their idea about the finding of this object became more and more important. And I, I continue to do some work on that even now, you know, uh, uh, several, a couple decades later. Wow. And the story, the story keeps getting, uh, keeps getting renewed. People keep telling it, but nobody ever bothers to actually look for the, the physical Bible. And so that's, that was the rabbit hole that I was uh, sharing with you and the other listeners that day at the American Academy of Religion conference. And I, I mean, this has all been a side project for me, but to me, it, it opens up a lot of fascinating questions about the stories that we tell ourselves about religion yes. and patriotism and violence in America. Exactly. Exactly. Exactly, man. And I think that's very pivotal right now. I, I, we, my wife and I recently picked up a series. It's rare. Both my wife and I have very different tastes in television and, <laughs> and movies. Um, I like sci-fi. She doesn't. She likes action so we can get along with action. But we recently picked up uh, Designated Survivor. It's on Netflix. And um, the first season, it talked about how... America needs an enemy, right? So for those of you who don't know the premise, it's about, um, it's, uh, uh, what's it, not Kiefer Sutherland, but, um, and not Donaldson, but it's Kiefer, uh, 
what is it? It's, it's, it's one of the, not Donald Sutherland's, it's the guy from yeah, 24. I believe, I believe it's Kiefer Sutherland, the guy that was in 24, yes, right? Yes, 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 yes. And he's the designated survivor for uh, this, that when the president is given the State of the Union and everybody in the State of the Union is blown up, there was a terrorist attack and blah, blah, blah. So that's kind of the premise of that. So he's thrown into this position and he's like 11th in the chain of command, but because everybody was killed, um, he, w- he ended up becoming the president. So, and, and as they're sifting through all the rubble and everything, somebody tells him like, look, America needs an enemy. Like we need somebody to, to blame this on. And like, I, I think that's so fascinating, right? It's like, you know, us needing an enemy, us needing something to have. And then how, like you said, that gets woven in with religion, uh, you know, God bless America and God bless these United States of America, you know? So I think those are fascinating things. But before we get to that, let me ask the question I ask everybody, because I, I, we can go down this, this trail and I want to, I want to put a pin note in that and come right back to it. What got you into this, man? What, uh, where have you been from birth to now? Cause you've had a very interesting life, brother. Oh my gosh. Well, I, I'll, I'll be as brief as I can to give the highlights. So, <laughs> Uh, I, I was born uh, out on a military base in California, uh, hmm. and and my my father had been raised Catholic, but then at eighteen had converted to Judaism. My mother uh, had been raised Congregationalist in uh, racist. They both grew up in kind of racist Muskegon, Michigan, uh, the sort of that that kind of um, white Northern racism sort of thing, and uh, and my mother had gone away from faith and had become a very, very loud atheist and was a devotee of Ayn Rand and uh, a kind of very right-wing political ideology. And so that was what I was raised in. Uh, When I was in high school, uh, some some hip dudes turned me on to leftist literature and I began to, uh, I began to explore the the, the foundations of what I was thinking and what I had been taught. So I was, I was raised in a very libertarian kind of right-wing household. We had a cache of military weapons. We were ready for the Russians to come. It was that kind of mindset that I was raised in. Um, and I, and it was a, it was a mindset that was, uh, that was full of ideology, but no actual faith. Because again, my, my, my mother was very adamantly anti-faith and my father, uh, because, uh, he, I, I'm not exactly sure why, but he, he decided to be very quiet about his own beliefs when I was growing up. And it wasn't until I was in my twenties that I began to realize, oh, you were raised Catholic. Oh, you became Jewish. Why did you do that? Those kinds of things. Um, and, uh, and so when I was in college, uh, a series of events, uh, as I was continuing, I, I went to college, I studied philosophy, I, I was really kind of looking at the kind of foundations of, of the politics and the ideology that I had been raised with. And so I was using my studies as a way of kind of interrogating my past in some ways. Mm-hmm. And in that, pro- in that process, I, I ended up being an atheist that went to a school that was run by the Episcopal Church, uh, the University of the South in Suwannee, Tennessee. And the University of the South was one of the last bastions of what we might call uh, the noble lie of kind of the, the great cause racism around the Civil War. So when I went to the University of the South, Swanee as it's called, uh, you go down University Avenue and they have uh, a 15 foot tall, large monument uh, to uh, General Kirby Smith, who was the last general to 
surrender in the Civil War, and that and they had descendants of Kirby Smith who were hanging around the town, and and, and the the entire notion of that place was that we were the Southerners were uh, the the genteel class of the United States and that everyone else was uncouth and that that everything about uh, the sort of pre-Civil War past was to be sort of lifted up. Uh, there, there's a lot of things we can go down there. But anyway, so I, 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 I grew up, I was born on a military base. I grew up near another military base in uh, deep South Georgia. And uh, a lot of what I was looking at as I was in college was not only the the past and racism of my parents, but the past and racism of the kind of, uh, the kind of uh, culture that I grew up in. They were two different kinds of racism. One was very overt, one was very quiet, but they both had extremely strong interlocking effects. Uh, and, and then in the midst of being in college, uh, I, I again encountered some people who, who opened me up to the narratives of Christianity and, and, uh, and through my desire to interrogate racism and all of that, I also discovered the religious society of friends, the Quakers. Hmm. And so I became a Quaker long before I became a Christian. Uh, it was probably in my late twenties that I actually made uh, a kind of conscious decision to say and begin to identify myself with the narratives of Jesus Christ as opposed to a kind of broader spirituality. So I went from being an atheist to a theist, a person who believed in something more than just materiality. Mm -hmm. But it was a while before I identified that theism with a Christian narrative. And then I ended up going to a Presbyterian seminary uh, and I actually entered the Presbyterian ordination process for a little while. But it was during that process that uh, that a whole bunch of things in the Presbyterian Church USA were happening around LGBTQIA issues. And I became disaffected for a number of reasons with the, the ordination process and decided not to, not to lay down my membership with the Religious Society of Friends and not to become formally Presbyterian and not to become a formal, a, a formal Presbyterian minister. Although I did pastor a Presbyterian church for five years during that process as a stated supply pastor. And then after uh, going to graduate school, uh, felt drawn for reasons that we can get into because they're not just religious, they're political to become Roman yeah. Catholic. Catholic. And so I've been Roman Catholic. I've been, I, I've been uh, identified with the Roman Catholic church uh, as a member and as a, a sort of very vocal participant for probably again, the last uh, 13, 14 years. And that brings me up to the present day where I'm a, I'm now uh, a professor of spirituality at the Christian spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University here in Chicago, which is a Jesuit university. And so I'm, I'm in a very religious context. I'm teaching in a religious context, but I still keep uh, what I call my inner atheist that looks back at me every morning in the mirror and sort of wags its finger at me. And the inner atheist says, when you were a kid and when you identified as an atheist on the playground, people made your life hell. You don't get to do that to other people. And so that, uh, that, that's a very sort of encapsulated version of my journey from atheism to now Roman Catholicism, but it's got a politics behind it and it's got a, an interest in the vulnerable at its core that I think is a through line through all of this. Man, that's rich. That is, that's, I, man, I, I love that. I mean, in, in the complexity, right, of, of, of what makes us and interweaves us, you know, who we are is one of the reasons why I asked that question. Um, 
of everyone who comes on the show. Um, well, let me ask this. I have a few things, man. So what, when you're thinking about this, well, let me, even before I get there, man, what got you into like radio and audio and whatnot, man? Why, why this particular route? And cause, uh, for those of you who don't know who's listening, man, and this is what I was, one of the things, one of the many things I love about, uh, brother David here is that, you know, you're a gearhead just m- much like myself. It's like, I, uh, you know, I'm always on eBay looking for different compressors or EQs or something like that. And, you know, of course now it's, it's plugins like, Oh, what plugin can I get here? But I love because we can talk shop, but what got you into this, man? What, you know, how did you end up? and choosing this particular route? Well, I, I would say probably it, it chose me. So I've always uh, had a love of music. And so growing up in South Georgia, listening to WDAK, the rock and roll station, the AM station there, I would, I would remember brushing my teeth. And then after I was done brushing my teeth, the radio would be on and I'd be singing into my toothbrush. <laughs> and so there's, there's always that romantic notion that I, I was going to be a, a, a kind of a rock and roll star. I think everybody has that. Um, the, uh, the thing that, that, that uh, really kind of got me into doing radio uh, was in 2009, my mother passed away. And I mentioned that I have a complex relationship with my mother that I, I sort of began to talk about. Um, as I came to faith, you know, my mother became very, uh, she became very uh, vocally concerned about the fact that I was becoming more identified as a person of faith. And in her mindset, the, the worst of the worst was to be Roman Catholic, because for her, that was Mm. a, that was a strong kind of ideological and strong kind of, it just, it was an oppressive force in the world as she saw it. And it was, uh, it was only a couple months after I finally admitted to her and it was years before I admitted to her that I had become Catholic, but she, uh, she, she passed away in 2009. Mm. And I found myself, uh, suddenly dealing with a bunch of unfinished business and grief. If, if anybody's listening, grief is not linear. Grief doesn't follow a straight line. Grief, uh, has its own agenda and its own timetable. And it, it, it gives you gifts, but it also robs you of things. Mm. And so one, one of the gifts that grief has given me in the now decades since my mother's death and a little more is I've, I've come to a greater appreciation of her struggle and what she was trying to do. Um, the thing that it robbed me of for a number of years was, uh, the ability to write. Uh, I got, uh, a very severe writer's block. And this was at the time when I was, I had just finished graduate school. I, I graduated with my PhD and my mother died in sort of a two month time span of one another. And so I started a new job and a tenure track job requires you to be writing and producing and publishing. And I was, I was discovering as I was on that journey that I was, faking all of the things that I needed to be doing, but I wasn't actually working on the projects that I had contracts for. I was missing deadlines. And as I began to explore and figure out why is this happening, I realized and and finally had to admit to myself that every time that I sat down to write and not just type something, but also, or even to write an email or even to write longhand on a pad of paper, I had a crippling anxiety attack. And so Mm. something was up. And so, um, you know, I didn't admit this to my program. I didn't tell my, my department chair. I didn't tell my dean. I kept this quiet for a while because what are you going to do as an academic? You admit you can't write. And they're going to look at you funny and say, well, we made a mistake and now we need to get somebody else in this position. Um, but uh, I did confide in a couple of really uh, wise friends. And one of them said, you can't write, but you can talk. 
And so maybe you mm. could record conversations with these folks and, and, uh, and use them later. And so I started talking to my scholar friends about their work and that over time kind of, uh, kind of evolved into an opportunity to be on the radio once a week, again, on an AM station in Memphis where I was teaching. And so I started doing a weekly show about religion and faith in Memphis. And that was the the seed kernel of what's now Things Not Seen that's based here in Chicago. Wow. Uh, but it, it was really a way of coping with the fact that I couldn't write. And I still, you know, 10 years later, I still suffer at times with bouts of extreme anxiety and writer's block, but it's gotten a lot better. But the, the real through line, the saving piece was this radio piece. And it, it, it is literally what got me uh, from Memphis to Chicago. It, it got me into a better line of employment for a while because I, I moved out of academia and I ran a, a nonprofit here in Chicago for a little while, which opened up a ton of not only local but national opportunities for me. And, and now I'm back in academia and able to function at a much higher level, but I'm able to function now with a much wider spectrum of options too, because now instead of simply thinking about my scholarly work as print publishing or giving uh, conference lectures, I now think about what you and I are doing right now as a part of my, my scholarly work, but also part of what we might loosely call a ministry. You know, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a calling here that has been really consistent for the last decade. And I'm, I'm grateful for it because it allows for uh, reaching uh, people with messages that are urgent in ways that you couldn't, if you were giving a paper at the AAR, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And that's, that's, again, that's the richness of it. And I think one of the things that I feel COVID-19 has really exposed um, that a lot of us knew, I know you knew, and a lot of us who've, you know, worked in and out of academia is that there's, there's some major cracks. There are some major fault lines that exist. Um, and I remember reading somebody's tweet that was saying, and I, I remember retweeting it because it was like, you know, some of these cats classes weren't popping to begin with in person. What makes you think they're going to be great, you know, online? Um, and I, I thought that to be so true because I, it, it, this was about 15 years ago. And as I was just getting my feet wet and, uh, in academia and, and teaching, and I remember somebody telling me, you know, and reminding me really, cause of my undergrad, uh, our professors, I mean, they grilled us and this was long before anything really became truly digitized, right? This was, um, 99, 2000, we were just getting into the age of the internet, um, you know, I mean, was what was what do we have? Uh, uh, um, not Facebook, but prior to that, it was um, like MySpace or yeah, stuff like go. that. There you go, MySpace, right? That was that was MySpace, and that was we were just trying to figure it out. But I remember our professor saying, like, the future is technology. The future, that's what's coming, and they just grilled us. I remember we had to take coding classes and learn HTML, and we were all like, wait. We're social science majors. Why are we learning this? But man, I thank them now. I could, just, I could, I could literally just thank them at their feet, and I have. But and I remember around 2005, I was like, I need to start moving my courses online and creating digitized versions of this. And I think, I think one of the things that you that you're mentioning here is the challenge, right? I think we've we've got this staticness of it. we have to produce these books. 600, 500, 400 pages that really only a select few um, can read or have access to. I mean, I think about even my book with Brill. I love it and I love the experience and it helped me push me over that tenure line. 
Um, but the damn book is $145. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, who's going to, you know, like, especially the, the audience that I'm trying to hit. I mean, they're not going to be able to afford that. They're barely going to look at $15 and be like, I don't know if I got that. So my point is, is, is in, in all of this, man, how have you just navigated some of those spaces? Because you you are in a great space right now in regards to academia, teaching, radio, um, how have you navigated some of those things and just, you know, stuck around even with a, you know, a terminal degree? Does that, does that make sense? I, I think so. And the, the short answer to how I've navigated those spaces is badly. Um, but, but, oh, come on. <laughs> but so, so, uh, let me, let me, uh, take, uh, a, a, a longer stab at what you're saying. When I got into, um, uh, teaching, I, I think I got into it because it was, and I'm scare quoting here with my fingers, it's the next thing I was supposed to do. And so I, I got started teaching at a small Catholic liberal arts college in, in Tennessee. And I came home and said to my wife one day, I've spent all this time climbing up the ladder and now I find, I think I'm on the wrong roof. Um, because I was angry all the time. And I had, mm. if you've ever watched those old Kung Fu movies, like the Shaw Brothers Kung Fu movies, there's, there's yeah. always this, this scene where like the, the, the guy that wants to learn the secrets climbs the long stairway and the master's standing at the top. And then the master kicks him back down the stairway and says, you're not worthy. That was what I thought teaching was. I thought that <laughs> I was the dude standing at the top because I had gotten all this. And my job was to humiliate the students who came uh, up those stairs to me. And I, I, I remember when students would come to class unprepared, when students would come to class without their A game, I was vicious. And I was vicious because I thought I spent all this time learning this stuff and you are now going to denigrate. You dare to not take seriously yeah. what I have spent all. And it was killing me. Mm. And so, and so one of the things that happened when, when, when I sort of admitted to myself that, that the writing was gone was I started to ask myself how badly I wanted what I was doing. And one of the blessings uh, that happened in that moment was a chance to do something that was unrelated to academia, a chance to do something that was still looking at communicating with people and communicating ideas with people. Because the nonprofit that I, I ran for a number of years here in Chicago is one of the oldest uh, media ministries in the United States. If you ever wondered why, I ran a, a, an organization called Chicago Sunday Evening Club. And if you ever wondered why the PTL Club and the 700 Club had the name Club, they stole it from the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. So that, that gives you an idea of how old and how influential this organization was in a certain type of evangelical media sphere. And, uh, and learning about that uh, and learning about why that organization was founded and what it was trying to do in terms of social good, that really began to um, re- it began to refocus what I thought a classroom could be. And, and, and also I will say that, you know, when I had that initial teaching experience and I was so angry, I realized that I was falling short of what I thought teaching could be and should be, but I didn't know nothing in my graduate training had taught me how to bridge the gap between what I thought in terms of really transformative uh, affirming education could be and how to do it. Like I was completely blind and completely unable to, uh, 
unable to bridge that gap. And so, you know, the, the many years away from teaching has helped me to refine what I think the classroom is for and what I think the educational relationship between a person who is teaching and a person who is there to learn is all about. And, uh, and so I feel very lucky uh, that I am now in a position where I get to teach in a, in a, in an organization whose explicit, uh, whose explicit mission is pastoral rather than academic. Hmm. And let me, let me explain what I mean by that. Um, When I was in graduate school, we used, uh, and by we, I mean uh, the sort of white ideological power structure that is always able to navigate well in these spaces. That power structure used words like academic rigor as a code language to make it very difficult for persons of color to navigate in that space. Um, and and when, I, when I'm in now uh, the, the teaching position that I'm in, um, you know, we have real conversations among faculty about how we're going to disarm language like academic rigor and use not use it as a, a means of disenfranchising students, but instead to think about the ways in which we are training students and our students are international. You know, how we're going to how we're going to train students of wildly diverse backgrounds, economically, socially, culturally, racially, how we're going to train them for Christian mission in the world in a way that is truly transformative and will truly speak to the problems that are all around us in the 21st century on a global scale um, in ways that don't uh, reproduce uh, the factors that help to create those problems in the first place. That's a very highfalutin answer, but I, <laughs> I will say I feel very lucky to have found uh, and not found makes it seem like this was all planned to have come into a situation now where I am with a group of colleagues and in a particular teaching situation where I can ask those kinds of questions and where I can be a part of those kinds of conversations, it would not have worked for me just to go back teaching anywhere. And if I, if I were to go back teaching in a situation like I was teaching in before, which was uh, more designed around um, a kind of factory atmosphere, I'm not sure that I would do well still. And so I, I, this is a long way of saying, you know, I see, I see what I'm doing right now, both in terms of radio, in terms of the writing that I do, and that's still really complex, but also the teaching that I do. I see all of it as political, mm. and I see it, I see it as, as all of it a means to uh, leverage privilege in order to protect and equip the vulnerable. And uh, I'm constantly trying to figure out how to do that better. And that's why resources like, you know, not only Profane Faith, listening to it, but also reading your writings, I find that to be a tremendous resource to me in terms of asking and, and interrogating those kinds of privileges and finding ways to disarm the privileges or put them to work for the vulnerable. And it's a constant, it's a constant unmapping for me trying to do that. Man. That's deep, brother. And this is, again, one of the many reasons, man, I, I just, I love being around you, man, and, and listening to you, man, and the work that you're doing. I love the tweet that you have posted on your Twitter. This is just a helpful reminder that if your style of Catholicism leads you to think it is more important to Jesus that you listen to Latin rather than feed the hungry, you're probably not going to enjoy my timeline. <laughs> I love that, man. Um, I, given 
your knowledge on religion and I forget and, and excuse me, I where where did you get your doctorate from, Brian? I I, I must have missed that. I'm apologize. No, no worries. So I I did a I did a master's in theological studies at Columbia Theological Seminary, and then I went on and and I did a second master's in religion at Vanderbilt, and then got my PhD in religion at Vanderbilt with a concentration in systematic theology and a minor in Judaic studies. Got it. Got it. Got it. So knowing what you know. And given the current time and place that we're in, we got COVID-19, we got, you know, Trump saying we, you know, we can go back. We need to open churches up right now. Um, I'm sure you've been, you know, following some of the kind of this mass exodus of black uh, uh, professors from like Liberty University. Um, you got, you know, police brutality that's, you know, really being exposed at a, on another level and, you know, got Minneapolis uh, city council voting to defund the police, man. Where do you see these intersections coming to, man? And just, I'm going to try to tap into your futurologist self for a minute, man. And like, where do you see us, man? And just even the next three, four years. And what are some of the challenges that we have in this intermixing? Cause it feels like this patriotism mixed with religion, mixed with race, mixed with, uh, violence uh, seems to be growing, not lessening. Um, and I'd be curious to get your thoughts on that. Man, I don't think anybody should ever listen to me <laughs> on, on questions like this, but I, I appreciate the generosity of that. So, and, and, and you, you've opened up, I think, a question that I haven't thought about in this way before. I mentioned earlier in the conversation that I was raised in a household that was very steeped in a in a, a particular type of right wing ideology. So it 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 was a it was a right wing ideology that really loved the exercise of brute force power, but it wasn't comfortable with the government doing the exercising. So it really loved militias, but it didn't necessarily love cops. Um, and and I'm I've been thinking a lot about this moment and how if my mother were alive, she would have reacted to this moment. And 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 just to, to kind of give a, 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 a little encapsulization, um, when, when Barack Obama was elected, my mother called me up and she left a message and she says, David, I don't know what to do. A black is the president. And that was the message. Like that was the entire message that she left. Hmm. And, and to me, like she, my mother, my mother sort of, uh, when she passed away, she passed away in a house where she had put cardboard on all the windows so that nobody could see in. Like there was a level of paranoia going on, uh, there. Uh, but also when my mother passed away, uh, we, when we went through the house to sort of, um, deal with the effects, one of the things that I did was I went to the places that I knew that she would have had weapons hid and we kind of got, we secured all the weapons and we secured the other things that, that she would have had. Wow. All right. So, so what does that mean for our present moment? Well, we're in a present moment when, uh, we, we have now, uh, a real critique of police power. And it's a real critique of police power that I'm very familiar with because I grew up with a right-wing critique of police power. So if you think about Waco and, and Ruby Ridge, you know, the sort of notion of the ATF wants to come and take your guns, that, that's a long-time narrative for me. Like the government is bad because they want to come and curtail your freedoms. But now instead, I'm seeing a, a critique of police power coming from the left. And it's fascinating to me to watch the left going through the same the same problems and and uh, uh, kind of blocks in in the in the journey that the right went through 30 years ago, 
you know, so there, mm. there's a, there's, there's a particular, there's a particular problem that the right went through 30 years ago of saying, we don't want the right, oh, I'm sorry, the right doesn't want the government to take away anybody's freedoms, but we really want to curb abortion and we really don't like gay people. <laughs> All right. And so so now we have the left saying, you know, we want civil liberties and we want the, the ability to do whatever we want. But we really want the government to come and shut up the Nazis. Um, yeah, that's a good and, point. And, and so and so, you know, for me looking ahead, I'm a pessimist about these things because uh, it any any intervention that we are having. Uh, with regard to a, a, an attempt to kind of reform the system that we're in. Uh, and by the system, I don't simply mean the current government, but I mean the wider stretch of capitalism. And so if we think about, if we think about like the, the punk movement from the 1970s, to go back to music, uh, capitalism was so good at taking this underground anti-materialist movement and repackaging it and selling it back to the kids as a new fashion choice. That is what our system does. It takes rebellion and it repackages it and it makes it. Now, Martin Luther King's a great example now. So Martin Luther King has been repackaged as a way of quieting down the current protesters. Mm -hmm. Well, King, King wouldn't do this. Hell yeah, King would do this. And, and in fact, King was out there doing this and King got shot for doing this. But we, 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 we kind of gloss over that. You know, Malcolm X got shot for doing this. Um, uh, Fred Hampton literally got shot for feeding people. You know, it's, it's, uh, right. yeah. Uh, and, and so, you know, we, we have these, these, um, these moments where the bar gets pushed forward, but the system and, and the entire ideology of the system is very good at taking the momentum of that forward mo movement, repackaging it in kind of a, a, a relief valve and saying, okay, now, now we've commodified this so you can buy this and you can feel rebellious, but really nothing will change. And, and I, I'm, you know, I don't see, I don't see how we have the moment that we're in work unless we can find a way to defang and disarm this process that I'm watching play out in real time, defund the police. Okay. That immediately gets translated in the media to, well, what they really mean is reform the police. No, that what, what, what we mean is defund the police. What we mean in many cases is abolish the police force because it is a, a racist, you know, remnant of slave patrols. You know, we need to actually we need to actually dismantle this thing, but it's being repackaged to us as a more palatable, you know, don't shoot them in the heart, shoot them in the knees kind of thing. Um, I've just gone a lot of different places in my answer to you. I, I'm, I'm a, I am a person who identifies with the narratives of Jesus Christ, which means I have, I have an obligation to be hopeful, but I also am a person who having lived through, uh, the kind of dark underbelly of, of, of right-wing terrorism, because I was a part of that for a number of years. Um, I know the perniciousness of right-wing terrorism, and I know that currently state power is very sympathetic to, and in many cases, allied with that kind of subculture of right-wing terrorism. And I don't think that that bodes well for our present moment unless we can figure out a way to radically dismantle that state power structure. And I don't know how we do that short of what we're seeing unfolding in the streets. And I'm not the person to ask what the end game of that is. People of color are the persons to ask what the end game is. My 
my white imagination is not broad enough to imagine what a future looks like in this moment, because anything that I imagine will be tainted by the racism that is still very much a part of my consciousness. Hmm. So I need, I need to be careful how I answer the future question, but I'm very much paying attention to the, uh, the underground through lines of deep history that are playing out here. Does that make sense? Yes. No, absolutely, man. I'm, I'm with you. I appreciate that response. And I think, yeah. And, you know, and I asked the future question because, I mean, you know, the reality is no one really knows what that looks like. I mean, I don't, you know, it, <laughs> right. I mean, we're we're into an interesting age. Um, and I didn't even ask, you know, just the influx of technology. Right. I mean, I think about the Amazon warehouse that went up. Um, oh, I don't know, maybe, you know, about a mile from or two miles, maybe from where I'm living right now. And, you know, there's maybe about 50 employees in there. I mean, this place is huge. Um, but it's automated, right? It's got machines in there. And so um, this is, and this is also something that I you know, teach in, in my own department is looking at, you know, friends and family in the mediated era. And, you know, we spend quite a amount of time looking at, you know, what does AI uh, do for us? And, and, and what are some of the challenges, you know, that it brings and, and, and whatnot. And so, you know, I think about that. I think about, you know, what, uh, what it means to have self-driving semi trucks that are out on the road right now uh that uh you know how does how does that affect and then of course the argument against all that of course is like well you know this really didn't tear up the phone industry did it when we took out all the operators and stuff and so it's just it's just the evolution of of material but keeping on that race you know theme i mean just and this is again i appreciate your perspective again as a white white male uh i think it's important you know as you begin to see just kind of the 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 arc, if you will, of of Donald Trump and just Trumpism in general, man. I mean, what what are some of the things that you encounter and that you engage with um, in regards to race, man? How do you see your position as a white man? I mean, you've talked a little bit about it, obviously, already given voice and and given that. I mean, what are some of the other you know intricacies? Cause I get this question a lot, like, man, what is a white person should we be doing? Um, and so I just, I make it a point to ask all my good woke white friends and colleagues, uh, <laughs> that question, you know, and just to give them broader examples. I appreciate again, the generosity of that question. And I will, I will start by saying, uh, why do you call me good? There is none good other than our father in heaven. But again, the generosity of your question is greatly appreciated. Uh, to circle back briefly to what you said about AI, I mean, we need to keep in mind with these self-driving cars and these self-driving uh, pieces of equipment. Um, uh, gosh, 10 years ago, you could buy a camera that had autofocus on it and it would, it would track the faces and it would keep the faces in focus. Only we discovered very quickly that it wouldn't do that to African-American faces or faces of color. It would only do it to white faces. And uh, I talked to people that are engaged in the ethics of technology, uh, kind of self-driving cars and things like that. What you need to always realize is that uh, they are programming algorithms into the cars to figure out, okay, if the car is in a situation where it, it can hit a pedestrian and, or it can swerve and hit another car, which will they value? Which will they, which choice will they make? And what we're finding again and again is that these cars, these, these automated technologies are being used to protect property and to definitely disenfranchise or to make vulnerable uh, persons who are, uh, who are kind of in the world. And, and so we need to be asking not just about, you know, 
these technologies as if they are somehow an unqualified good, but recognize that in any moment of these technologies, there are people who are making choices behind the scenes about who gets to live and who gets to die. And, and so I, you know, what should, what should a white person be doing right now? Well, when I was in college and I was first beginning to confront these things, you know, 30 years ago, uh, I would have thought that simply not being a menace to the persons of color on my campus was the right thing to do. And that was not the right thing to do. It was an, it was, it was, it was a level of response that was inadequate. Um, the, and, and my wife, thank, thank goodness has been very good about pulling me along this as well, because she's, she's more radicalized than I am in many, in many cases. And she is a much clearer thinker. And so, you know, what a white person needs to be doing right now is one, like James Cone suggested, we need to be naming the fact that we are always in the position of being able to take up or put down the oppression of our society. So if a white person stands in the way of, you know, an advancing line of, of police in riot gear to protect the black and brown people behind them, that's wonderful. But then they get to go home. And they get to go home to a place where where the police protect their power and their privilege and don't threaten it. And so it's not enough to simply uh, show up and be an ally. You have to be actively anti-racist. And it's hard. It's hard for white people to find ways to be anti-racist oftentimes because, again, um, the oppression is hidden from us most of the time. Like what has been happening in the last couple of weeks, I think has been a moment of clarity for a lot of, a lot of my, uh, my Caucasian identifying brothers and sisters, because for the first time they're seeing police violence in its, in its raw form. And more than this, they're seeing police violence turned not just against uh, persons of color, but they're seeing police violence turned against uh, white people. So think about in Syracuse, uh, was it, no, Buffalo, New York, the, the 75-year-old um, yeah. uh, Catholic worker protester who's knocked backwards and begins bleeding out of his ears. Well, I think for some uh, who were watching, that was a wake-up moment. Like, you can do that to grandpa? <laughs> right, <laughs> and, yes. And, and, and the answer is, you know, they've been doing that to grandpa and everyone else for a long time. You just haven't seen it. And so, you know, becoming aware is sort of a first step, but what happens a lot of times, and my, my friend Xavier Ramey points this out, a lot of times when, when white folk become aware, they immediately become fragile. Oh God, do they think that about me? Oh God, do they think that I'm part of the problem? And immediately they begin centering themselves in the narrative. That's why I said a few minutes ago, I don't want to be asked what the future looks like, because I can't imagine a future that's good enough for my, for my persons of color, brothers and sisters in the world, for my, my, my trans LGBTQI plus persons in the world, I can't imagine a future that's good enough for them because I have been limited in my vision. I need to shut up and I need to listen and I need to follow and I need to use my privilege where I can to augment and to amplify the messages that are being said. You know, I, I, I'm aware that, um, that uh, a video from New Mexico is going around on Twitter right now of the police going to a bus stop, you know, one of those open air bus stops that's a little bit sheltered. Yes. There's a ho the homeless man laying there. And as the homeless man is getting up to kind of respond to them, they literally shoot him dead. They used him as target practice. I mean, that that's the kind of, that's the kind of uh, unchecked power that we're dealing with right now. It's, and, and so often, 
the role of the white person has been to stand in the crowd and say, yes, yes, give us Barabbas more of this. And it's, it's time for, for people like me, not only to own that, but to repent of that and to actively dismantle that. And, uh, and, and I need to be careful when I start saying, and then it should look like this for white people to do it. I think it should look like what, what persons of color in the moment are telling us they need in that moment. I think that's, that's the most active thing that the most important thing. And it's, and it's, it's bad also because immediately that becomes a reason for uh, white people to disengage and to become quiet. And so I, I'm still, I'm, I'm in real time, Daniel, working this out, trying to figure out in any given moment, you know, especially since I'm kind of sitting here in my house most of the time and not able to be out in the world the way that, that you know, this moment might demand. Um, I constantly am asking myself, how can I be using what privilege I have, what platform I have to amplify, to do those sorts of things? But I constantly know that it's not enough. And the reason why I know it's not enough is because the, you know, the problem is still here. And so anything that, that, that persons of privilege have been doing in this moment, persons of privilege, whether it's economic or whether it's racial or whether it's political, they haven't been doing enough because we know the problem is still here. And so keep listening and keep, uh, keep humbly trying to repent and, and use the privilege for the vulnerable. Those are the, those are the starting points. They're not by any means the ending points. And it's a very inadequate answer that I'm giving you. No, I appreciate it. I appreciate it a lot simply because I mean, that there is, there's some great, you know, influx in there that I think we can, we can, you know, we can take away with, because again, the reality of it is, is that yes. And I, and I saw that video and it's disgusting. It's uh, I mean, the way they line up, I mean, it's like a firing squad, right? I mean, and this is, Again, and for those of you listening, and I imagine most of the audience of Profane Faith is, is is keenly aware of some of these things, but it's like for those who are just kind of waking up to some of this, um, you know, <laughs> horrendous amount of violence, I think it's, it. this is the type of stuff that has been going on in, in our communities, and I particularly, I say the black communities, you know, for a long time. And as a kid, I knew that police used their force for, uh, not for good. I mean, I always found it odd when it said protect and serve, um, you know, and so that that for me was like a complete oxymoron growing up. And I didn't see any kind of protection whatsoever of anything. You 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 never you didn't call the police if something was happening. It's like you tried to handle that stuff within the neighborhood. Now, you know, fast forward and I'm working in nonprofits and trying to, you know, work side by side with 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 the. Um, police officers and even then it's it's still a struggle you know people talk about good cops i mean it's you know the good cops that i know have either quit uh because they just couldn't take it anymore they've been been in a religious sense been excommunicated they've been fired uh from their job and can't get anything else in law enforcement um or quite honestly they'll uh commit suicide um or the other side of it i mean i'm forgetting the brother man's name uh he was an lapd pd officer um, African-American did everything right, served in the military. This was a few years back. And, uh, his partner was, it was just, they were serving a warrant together and she was just, just extremely violent. So he put in a, uh, you know, a, well, he was like, you know, I just, I, this is, this is not good. He, you know, he reported her, uh, and then everything fell apart from there. Right. He couldn't get a job, couldn't do anything. And like, it, it you know, and then he snapped and started taking out like police officers and stuff, man. And it's like, he wrote a whole manifesto and everything. So 
we see these things and, you know, people say, oh, my gosh, you know, and it's 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 only when you start to put these things together, much like a puzzle that you begin to see the bigger and more detailed picture, uh, which I appreciate you have have done so well. Um, and again, I, I get that you're not trying to, you know, elevate white voice over. But I, again, I think it's it's good to know that there are some cats like yourself out there, you know, still trying to to to, to knock down some walls because, man, it it um, it looks hopeless a lot of times, man. I'm not going to lie um, about that, brother. Well, and let me let me ask you, because we've we've kind of touched on it a couple points. But, you know, if we think about intersectionality. Um, how do we, how do we as persons who are interested in, uh, the liberation and protection of, of black and brown bodies, how does that intersect with the protection and liberation of queer bodies of, of non, non cis het identifying bodies? How does that, how does that, uh, intersect with the protection of female bodies in a patriarchal rape culture like that? That's, that's the real, uh, that to me is one of the questions that, that continue to stretch me, particularly in a Christian context, right? Yeah. Because a lot of what, a lot of what the Christian narrative gives us is so tied to anti LGBTQI is so tied to the patriarchy is so tied to a certain type of, of whiteness, um, I think about um, the uh, Yusef, uh, I forget his first name, but he's a Reverend Yusef's Church of the Apostles down in Atlanta. <clears throat> I was in there one time uh, just kind of looking around and what struck me was that, uh, that, you know, in the stained glass windows, as Jesus goes from being uh, a human person to being kind of uh, resurrected, he gets more and more and more white until in the resurrection, he is absolutely blank white. And there, there, there's an ideology there, you know, that, that is tied up in our religiosity. So how, how can a Christian, how can a Christian grow in intersectionality? Oh my gosh. Um, that's a great question, brother. I like how you, how you flip that around. That's good stuff because I think I always tell folks, I mean, you know, any conversation we're having on race, I mean, you can, you can easily subtract, uh, probably easily a, a, a century of just awareness and whatnot in, in terms of sexuality, human sexuality, gender identity, all of those things, right? Patriarchy. I mean, because I think, you know, and seeing it, right, in, in like my mom was, you know, in the Panthers and stuff, but seeing the sexism that existed, even in an organization that stood for equity and equality and, and trying to take back the streets, there was still this line of of sexism that existed um and even in some of my own work and research and talking with uh, you know you know civil rights workers from back in the 50s and 60s that are still um among us and you know it's the women still got paid less than the men right and here <laughs> and here again is it is an organization that is like man female-led so I think the intersectionality really hit home right when Black Lives Matter was started right because it gets underneath the Christian evangelical wing, right, of, of, of everything, because it's queer women who, who are leading it, women of color, uh, women who are outspoken, who, who speak against the, the, the patriarchy, uh, who push back on just, an, uh, like you said, this, this kind of white, idealized image of who God is. And I remember just, and this is back when I was still a director uh, for this, this center for youth ministry. And, uh, it, it was, it was a struggle. We, I remember I did a webinar talking about this and the pushback that I got, you know, cause of course people always write in and, you know, it's like a slave plantation, right? It's like, well, you got to go to the master and, 
you know, you know, turn, turn this person in and whatnot. And, and uh, I remember one of the emails, it was this long email, probably had to be about 3000 words easily um, about how we were feminizing our men and we were fetishizing. Uh, of course, they didn't call it LGBTQ. You know, they used homosexuality and how a place of that we were about, you know, where I teach at could allow this to even exist underneath the, you know, this umbrella. And so again, that type of ideology, well, sure that was one or two letters, but that is a growing thing. And even among uh, people of color, right? You have this. I mean, I've, I've been at plenty of, you know, people of color. I mean, this was right after Ferguson. We was, I was at a, um, it was a, it was broadly urban. It was urban youth workers Institute. There we go. And I remember talking about Ferguson. Everybody's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Take back the streets. I brought up the whole thing about, uh, you know, I said, and I said, that also goes for our LGBTQI, uh, family as well. And people, I mean, crickets, right? People looking at me like, what are you talking about? You talking about, and literally somebody said, are you talking about that gay shit? Oh, man, you know, I don't know about all that, you know, and then of course come on. And this, this is a group of black folk, Latinx folk, Asian Pacific Islander folk, right? You know, and those are the things that get me because it's like the conversation just stops at race. And what always gets me is that people want to talk about all this equity, but they won't extend that um, to LGBTQI. And, and that's, that for me is, is a big conversation and even the bigger conversation, right? As we begin to think and look at these things. And I, you know, I don't know, I'm sure how much I've shared with you and just my own understanding of, of God and looking at God as, is, is a type four civilization and, uh, you know, somebody who is, you know, the progenitors and creators and creators of life. Um, but maybe, you know, God themselves don't even necessarily, you know, have, didn't necessarily even create the universe, especially when you take into account, uh, if we look at the big bang or if we look at, you know, are we on the other side of a singularity or whatever, that blah, blah, blah. My point being is, is that for me, it, there's so much that is placed on 13 little scriptures, 12, 13, one, maybe 14 little scriptures of, of sexuality, you know, particularly and, 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 of those, there's very little that even talks about people being gay. Most of that stuff was written over. Most of that stuff was implemented, right? And so, but we've built all these things around it. And I think about it today as like the Supreme Court, what is it? They ruled today that, um, you know, LGBTQ folks, they fall under the same protections of, you know, the, uh, the 1964 Civil Rights you know, discriminatory act and stuff. And I think about just the amount of people who will find that disgusting. And I'm like, and I always ask the question, why, why are you so angry about this? Why do you stop, right? LGBTQ folks getting even access to COVID-19 testing. Why? And then of course, the next one to that is of course, you know, abortion, right? <laughs> That's like, you know, the two demonic plagues of particularly, like I said, Christian evangelical uh, theology, not to leave Protestant, you know, Protestantism out, but I, I think that that's, those are some areas that I think, yes, we have to continue uh, working on. Um, and it does, it feels even worse. It feels like I'm trying to, to sprint in about eight feet of water. That's such a good image. And one, Oh man. And the frustration of, of using all of your power, all of your muscles to move forward and only getting just inches of, of traction. I, I follow what you mean by that. 
uh, and I mean, the, the struggle, the struggle in these spaces, in these religious spaces, I think is, is really important to name. And, uh, and this is where, again, uh, I think uh, a writer like James Cone has been so helpful to me because as I, when I first encountered James Cone in Atlanta, Georgia at, at Columbia seminary Hmm. in a context, you know, having gone to the university of the South, having been raised, you know, in, in the deep South, it was really challenging to me to read James Cone, and I could not read him at first with charity. It took me it took me a long time of coming back to Cone to really begin to grasp the and it's not the problem of the clarity of his writing. It was the problem of the the cloudedness of my vision. And, uh, and, and what I, what I have come away from, and, and again, I'm still, I still go back to Cone. And so I'm, I'm open to this reading being constantly kind of refined, but if I were to, if I were to apply Cone's thought to this moment, if we were to say, where, where do we find Jesus in this particular American moment? Jesus, as I understand Cone's thinking is best found or is, is, is Jesus chooses to identify right now with a, with a, an African-American trans woman you know, in the inner city who is being brutalized by the police or has just been left for dead. Like if we want to find where Jesus is in this moment, we look for the absolutely most vulnerable people in our population because that's where Jesus chose to go. Jesus chose to be open to and exposed to the kind of violence that the least of these, as Matthew 25 says, uh, is are exposed to. Well, if that's the case, then the church standing back and saying tisk 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 and oh we shouldn't we shouldn't extend healthcare to these people these people are are bad you're missing jesus in mm-hmm. my reading and and to me and i i have a i've got a great deal of difficulty around the language of christian identification i i in this conversation uh, i've been i've been very careful about the way that i self identify i'm a person who very much wants to be where jesus is i'm not sure whether i get to call myself a christian in that desire I think it's for others to look at my behavior and then say, yes, that behavior looks Christian as we understand it. And in this particular political moment, a lot of people who are very publicly identified with Christianity are going to dislike where I choose to stand when I'm trying to find Jesus. And I don't know what to make of that other than it makes it really problematic to call yourself Christian. And I wrestle with that a lot. I wrestle with, you know, I teach at a Christian school. It publicly identifies as Christian. I, I, I am, I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to be where Jesus is, but that's going to get me in trouble with the people that think that they're where Jesus is. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) And in, in, in the process of trying to work that out, um, you know, I, I think, uh, I'm constantly trying to find ways to, uh, to uplift the vulnerable. And, uh, and I don't do as good a job of that as I should. And, and that's the constant reproach. Like, uh, I will constantly be because of, of the way that, that these structures exist, I will constantly be in the deficient place of the rich man. And, and I will constantly be saying, yes, but can't Lazarus just come and comfort me now? Hmm. Um, and, and I, I need to constantly be repenting of my desire to be comfortable in the situation that I'm in. I, I'm, I'm just, I'm kind of talking off the top of my head right now, but I, I, I'm so grateful in part because some of the people that I have heard on profane faith have opened me up to some of these questions. Hmm. And I, I forget, I forget the gentleman's name, but you talked to him about, uh, about probably two years ago, uh, a person who was in a very evangelical context, but was very much publicly out as a, as a gay man. 
and uh, and really willing to to stand in the and I I remember very clearly something that he said that that just completely transfixed me and transformed me. He 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 talked about exactly what you just named in that context of, of don't bring that gay shit. And his response was, which oppression in this particular moment that I'm experiencing do you want me to lay down? Like, which of these do you think that I can give up? The fact that I'm African-American, the fact that I'm gay, the fact that I'm poor. Like, which of these do you think I have the power to, to not suffer from right now? And, and to me, that was, that was a crystallizing moment where I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, my God. And I'm the person, I am the person benefiting from the boot on this person's neck. I need to start doing something about that. Uh, but, but, it, but it's really moments like listening to your show that, that, I, that get me into the position of, of realizing that I need to answer and think about these issues because nothing, nothing in my, in my experience of education has chosen to confront me with those kinds of questions. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And so, and so, you know, the, the fact that I now get to come on Profane Faith and, and have this conversation with you is a great honor to me because uh, I have learned so much from the work that you're doing and I'm so grateful for it. What, what is it that keeps you going in these moments? Because, I mean, as, you, as, as, as you've said, I mean, it's a lot of work to do this. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's not always the most hopeful work to do this. So uh, what is it that you find that, that, that keeps you moving forward? Man, that's a great question, brother. I mean, I, I think I try to explore that, you know, every day when I wake up in the morning, I think, uh, you know, part of it is family. I mean, you know, my partner, Emily, uh, my daughter, uh, Mahalia, uh, they're, they're key and crucial to, to life. Uh, you know, we have, we made up for pets, what we didn't do in kids. So we have seven pets, three, three dogs and four cats. Uh, of course, my daughter would be remiss if my, my, my daughter, who, who may be listening, um, you know, she has a little fish that she got from school. When they closed the school down, she ended up uh, fostering this fish. And she said, oh, we got to close the fish. But I, was like, eh, I don't know. You can't take the fish out and walk it or pet it or put it in your lap. Um, and so those those are the key, the, some of the key parts. I think for me, though, um, if I've resigned myself to a lot of part of large part of what Miguel de la Torre defines as, you know, this theology of hopelessness and finding God in that sense that, you know, in my lifetime, I don't think we'll see these grandeur changes, um, that, you know, that we all write, that we all talk about. And I think, uh, that, and, 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 and not in a sense like, oh, it's all gone. Like I'm hopeless. Therefore I must, you know, go down some of these, these inter, but it's a thing that I hold in tension, uh, particularly when people start getting too excited about, Oh, did you see this? Did you see this? And now that I've lived long enough to be like, yeah, I've seen that before. Yeah. I've seen it. And here's what happened when this happened. Right. Um, and I was, and it's interesting position to be in because I have a lot of hopeful students, especially white progressive students that sit in my classrooms wanting to change everything, um, and then something like this happens with George Floyd, Philando Castile, and they're shook. And I'm trying to figure out what that means because, you know, back in the day, I used to teach a, a course called LA Term. Uh, it was with the Azusa Pacific University when I was still living in Los Angeles. And, you know, for the most part, it was a group of progressive white students that would come, um, and, you know, out to Los Angeles and we, you know, basically we'd put them in like in 
homes. They couldn't do any, they couldn't take any of their own, you know, transportation. Cause if you know anything about LA, I mean, we, we don't do public transportation <laughs> that you just, you got a car. I mean, it's like car culture is huge in LA. So to take a student's car away from them was like a huge thing. It's like now the equivalent of taking, you know, a 10 year old's phone away from them and stuff, man. So it was like this huge thing. And I thought then I'm like, Oh man, we're making a difference. This is great. We've got all these white students. And brother, one by one, uh, I started seeing, I would probably say, I don't know what the percentages are. I can't put a number on it, but a lot of them um, ended up not, you know, you come, fast forward to Trump in 2016. And so many of them were voting for Trump and voting, uh, you know, who had, who switched around and their response was like, well, I used to think this way, but, you know, I've just seen that, you know, trying to be an ally or trying to do these things just isn't worth it. You know, black people are just as racist as, as white people, if not worse. And, you know, just a lot of these kind of tropes that we hear and whatnot. And so that was, I was like, huh, what the hell did that all mean? Now I wasn't in charge of the program. And so I can't say all the intricacies of, but I was definitely a, a wheel in that. And so I'm trying to ask myself, like, what, what was it about that that would, you know, you, you you have these, you know, initial white students, you know, who are like on fire, like, oh, we're going to go protest and write these things and then turn around and say, no, nah, I'm voting for Trump. <laughs> you know, uh, and, and one of, you know, a few of them go as far as to actually say, hail Trump, you know, like Trump is, you know, the the uh, the second coming and stuff. And so I'm just like, wow. OK, what's what's going on here? And I don't intend to you know mean to psychologize that as much as to say the things that I just listed for hope are, are what keeps me motivated and going. Um, there's not, there's not much else, uh, if I'm honest. Um, and I think the for the further, and I, and I thank you, man, I'm glad you're a fan of the show. I really appreciate your support. Um, I, I, I've always been a principled man, uh, and I can credit that to my mom and my grandmother raising me. Um, you know, but that always comes with a price, right? It's like, I don't get asked to speak places anymore. Right. It's like, you know, uh, I'm not the friendly black person. In fact, somebody the other day was like, hey, can you come and speak at our church and do this? And I was like, nah, I, I'm, I'm not the one to do that. Nah, nah, I'm, I'm not. I'm not your one. You need somebody friendlier than me because I'm not I'm not going to be friendly. I'm just you know, and I said it just like that. I'm just like, I'm, I'm not going to be, you know, I'm going I'm going to come at it. You know what I'm saying? I mean, think if think of the dichotomy between who you I who you visualize to be Martin Luther King and who you visualize to be Malcolm X. I'm I'm Malcolm X. So. You know, and I'm not saying that I'm like Malcolm X and I'm following that. I'm mean, just simply saying that, particularly for white folks, and they see Michael Malcolm X as they say, oh, this is militant, radical. But it's been a challenge. And, you know, I struggle with anxiety and depression. I take medication for that. Talked about it publicly on the show. Um, see my therapist. In fact, I just got a tw uh, text from my therapist to confirm my appointment tomorrow. And so that's those are the things that have been. Uh, helping me. Um, and, you know, suicide runs in my family. So I have to keep an eye on that um, as well. And those, those, those thoughts, I mean, those are, those are some real things and stuff, man. And so um, I think being in the position I've been in, it really gets me to question, like, what really matters? Was it, does it really matter that you're up on a stage being the man, being the doctor and being the, being the expert, you know, or is it really just getting your message out? Because if that's the case, the podcast is doing that. You know, do you really need to go out and, and, and get on a plane and travel halfway across the country just to, you know, to do that? And so those are some of the things I've wrestled with in, you know, in that theology of hopelessness. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. And and you just put some stuff on my radar that I hadn't even thought about when we were talking about intersectionality a couple minutes ago. And it's the intersectionality that includes uh, disability, disability 
different abledness, but also uh, the variety of mental states that people are in. Like, like all of those are factors in how we yeah. need to be thinking about the the blessed kingdom, right? The, in terms of of a society that is truly inclusive, a society that truly flourishes in God's extraordinary variety. Uh, it 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 demands all of that, and and I'm I'm appreciative also of you know, your reference to things like uh, resource intentionality, like, is it worth it to get on a plane and go just so that I can build up my ego and all of that, that, you know, that those are things that, that I think about in terms of how to get a message out. So we're, you and I are both in an academic setting where we are very pushed towards things like print. Print yeah. is incredibly resource intensive. Like it takes a lot of water and a lot of wood <laughs> to make books. Yes. And, and I'm, I'm constantly thinking about the fact of, okay, is it, is what I'm going to write as a part of this process of getting tenure? Is it, is it worth tying up those resources knowing that a lot of that stuff is going to get pulped because it didn't sell and yet we need to go through the the fiction of sort of creating the material product and saying that it was available and all that. One of the things that I love about podcasting, which you just said, is that in terms of getting the message out, this is a much less resource intensive way of doing it. It still ties up resources, but it's, it's a lot less, you know, in terms of having to carry around, um, kind of frozen, uh, frozen resources like wood and water in the form of books. So there, there, there's a politics to everything that we do and a politics that, uh, that goes deep into how we are to be, uh, and I hesitate to use this word, but how we're to be stewards of, of the earth that we have been gifted with. Amen to that, brother. I, yep, I appreciate that, man. In fact, I'll say this, and I know we got to wrap up. Um, you know, the book that I'm currently writing, which is the textbook, which is a whole different, you know, arm to flex when it comes to, right? It's not just a monograph where you pontificate for, you know, X amount of 100 pages, but this is actually, you know, pedagogy, but it's all um, electronic. It's all, it's on a website. It's integrated into like, you know, uh, student learning systems like Canvas or uh, Blackboard and whatnot. And so, you know, and the great thing about that is, is that it'll actually be accessible and I can edit it on the fly and on the go rather than, like you said, the print and whatnot and the hardback. And, and, you know, nowadays is again, it's showing us COVID-19 showed us that, you know, we need to have way more electronic sources, you know, available to us <laughs> and the access to them uh, rather than, having just the the you know the print and whatnot but man brother dr doll thank you so much for taking time to coming on this show today and to speak to us for this long man it was a wealth of information and i could keep asking you more which only signifies that i need to get you back on the show uh which i would definitely be doing um where can folks find you man and maybe you know maybe there is somebody out there that wants to you know pay you that five thousand and says hey i got a, a position here at some school in chicago tenure track we're ready to go right now man where can folks reach out to you so uh you can find me on twitter at dalt radio uh you can find the work that i do for uh my radio show at things not seen radio.com and uh, i also do a lot of media work for other great organizations uh like commonweal magazine in New York, Sojourners, and uh, and Freedom Road, which is a great social justice organization based out of Washington, D.C. You can find all that at sandbergmedia.com, S-A-N-D-B-U-R-G media.com. And uh, eventually, when I finally get it finished, daviddalt.com will have information on it. 
but right now it's just a hot mess. So <laughs> <laughs> I hear that. And for those listening, as always, I'll put these in the show notes at whitehodgepodcast.com. If you go there, click on Profane Faith, you'll have access to the latest show, um, or you can uh, do a quick search and find, if you're not listening to this in real time, and find Dr. Dalt's uh, uh, work and messages and links there as well. And thank you for your show, Thanks Not Seen. If you haven't listened to it, folks, go out there, just check it out. You know, you already, if you're listening to this, you're going to love Things Not Seen. Well, I'm so grateful also for the work that you're doing. And it, it is an honor to be on your show. Thank you again for what you've been doing. I learn from it and I tell folks about your show all the time. I'm really grateful to have the chance to talk to you today. Oh, brother. Thank you. Thank you. 